0: wanted to begin tonight sharing a poem that uh, I often do uh, to uh, speak to what uh, Carol pointed to last night about what happens when we, you could say, hit the wall. I thought you might appreciate this from Hafiz. It's called 10,000 Idiots. (laughs) It's always a danger to aspirants on the path when they begin to believe and act as if the 10,000 idiots who so long ruled and lived inside have all packed their bags and skipped town or died. (laughs) So every single yogi is revisited by the armies of Mara again and again and again. And really our whole practice about is how we work with uh, the armies of Mara. Today, as is true with um, most days uh, for the last several years that uh, I'm scheduled to give a discourse, and especially when I'm giving a discourse on this topic that I will be speaking about tonight, I am taken back three-plus years to an innocent... uh, evening, Tuesday evening class, a class I've been leading now for 25 years, uh, locking up the building that I've been renting, putting down my uh, big messenger bag that holds 22 years of all, at that point, 22 years of all the archives, readings, all those little twisted pieces of paper, put it down uh, near the front door to go lock up this room or that room. And when I returned from locking the rooms that I had been locking, my bag was gone with all my stuff. All that, all that history, all that, all that meaning and significance that all those pieces of paper had. And I felt this, obviously, this moment of shock, dismay, uh, slight disorientation, but something that was, was maybe equally as shocking is that what rose very quickly to the surface, what really shined through was this, this calm, this, sil- this kind of silence that was in some ways pervading all the different moods that I was experiencing. And a little voice in my mind, and I don't remember the exact words, but uh, it were, they were, this is how it is. This is how it is, whether I like it or not. About a year earlier, I was also leaving the uh, Tuesday evening group. I was driving up a street in San Francisco called Dolores Street, turning onto Market Street. And when you turn onto Market, you there's a quickly you come upon a, a traffic light, and I was sitting at the traffic light, and this is not really meant to shock you, but the, um, without really knowing it was happening, someone I found out later who was moving at a, a, to the tune of about 60 to 65 miles per hour rammed into my rear end. And my first thought, you just don't know. It really was my first <laughs> night. And this, this sense of calm, this is how it is. And it dawned on me at that time that, and I, I'm not exactly sure how to what, what and how to make attributions in a situation like this, but I have some confidence that something of what I have been doing my whole life <laughs> had, had taken root in my consciousness. Some opening that I know all of us are doing here to this substratum, to this undercurrent, the, uh, maybe you can call it our, our innermost nature of peace, of uh, something that's really un- untouched by what visits. And I think we start to s- taste the, the fragrance of that. and really that peace you could call it awareness I, I don't even want to call it a name but it has become a true refuge uh, for me something that i can rely on and it it's it's a been a protection for dealing with the various things that have happened and i've noticed in the course of interviews over the last several days uh, that you may not Feel this, but there is, in spite of the, the armies of Mara, there is this kind of pervading quality of non-reactiveness, this kind of peace, this um, sense of steadiness. Any of you relate to that feeling? Dawning in your consciousness. The beautiful thing, if you can start to notice this, actually turn the, the light turning on this quality, it actually enhances it, this quality of, of, of balance, non-reactiveness, of openness. I also have complete confidence, after meeting with so many people and, of course, out of my own practice, that every single moment of mindful attention, I know I'm like a broken record on this, But every single moment of mindful attention is actually strengthening that quality of non-reactiveness, that quality of balance, that quality of peace, that, that sense of being right in the middle of things. As Carol was pointing to, and all of us in our own ways, that really, if we put our trust in awareness, we put our trust in whenever it is that we're aware whatever it is that we're aware as she said last night as we all say it doesn't matter what you're aware of it doesn't matter what's happening but if you put that trust in awareness it is that that refuge in awareness that increasingly allows us to meet to be more interested in that quality of presence than whatever fluctuations may be occurring in our or our self-view. To really rest, know that if we're knowing, if there is if there's consciousness of what's happening, that, um, that we're planting a very wholesome seed. The seed of non-clinging, the seed of balance, Seed of peace. Because that moment of mindfulness is a moment free of those three root causes that we're unpacking of greed, hatred, and ignorance. As Joseph Goldstein highlighted in his book called One Dharma, I don't know how many of you had the good uh, fortune of reading that, but he described how the essence of all the different uh, traditions lead to one to one, uh, what seems to be one pointing, one fact, that if we develop a mind that does not cling, calls it the mind of non-clinging, this is what actually leads to a sense of well-being and freedom to the sure heart's release, is a mind of non-clinging. The Buddha, in one sutta, says, develop a mind that clings to naught. And he describes in another short little sutra, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Again, non-clinging. Whoever has heard this teaching has heard the entire dharma. Whoever has practiced this mind of non-clinging, which you are in every moment of mindfulness, you are practicing the entire dharma. If you have uh, realized this mind, you've realized the entire dharma, this mind of non-clinging. This is what brings about that sense of balance, that sense of deep peace and non-reactiveness. So again, again, I'll say that just as the Buddha's mind became increasingly balanced, Bright and non-reactive or non-clinging as he faced the as he faced the armies of Mara, to no different than what we're doing here, so too are your minds becoming slowly more bright, balanced, using the very experiences that we're having to brighten and steady our minds. I, I always like to remember that even after the Buddha's awakening, and maybe it's been mentioned in other talks, but even after the Buddha's awakening, Mara kept coming to visit. Mara is just our mind. So on that night that the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, as his mind developed, composed, non-reactive, fell into a a very strong state of what we call equanimity. That's actually what I want to speak about tonight. And in that state of equanimity, born of being well-collected and composed, all the conditions present that we're building as we practice here, with his mind very still, very non-reactive, very dispassionate toward whatever was presenting itself, a certain clarity came. And as I described it earlier in the retreat, his mind mind was literally shining in its clarity and its crystal-like quality. And it said that through, as his mind rested, during the three watches of the night, I have a little quote here, he saw with refined vision his own past lives, that was one watch of the night, the birth and death of beings according to their karma, and a liberating insight into how suffering in our lives is born from ignorance and ends through wisdom. Essentially, his mind saw through the illusion of self and separateness. He also by virtue of seeing through the illusion of self or separateness, he saw through the illusion of other. He saw that life was this tapestry of interdependent causes and conditions, everything woven into the fabric of life, nothing left out, nothing apart from anything else. And out of that relinquishing of the limiting views, uh, the, the cessation of Sakaya Ditti, this tremendous love came over him, this boundless love. You could say his love was unleashed as an expression of seeing into emptiness. But it was balanced, having seen in that second watch of the night how beings are born and die according to their karma According to the causes and conditions. So that love was balanced with a quality of, of stability, of wisdom, of balance, of equanimity. This quality of equanimity, this quality of unshakable balance, is really the pinnacle, as Deepama puts it, the crowning stage of Dharma practice where she is quoted as saying this, I'm not sure if it's her words, where consciousness becomes a symphony of loving-kindness playing in a silent ocean of equanimity. It is, as most of you probably already know, it is the fourth Immeasurable quality. It is the fourth divine abode. The quality that um, that helps to balance the open-heartedness that we feel. That allow that that both that quality of open-heartedness that breaks our hearts, that leads when not balanced with equanimity, leads to attachment, leads to envy or jealousy. It is the, it's the culmination of, the, um, of the, the balance between compassion and emptiness, that razor's edge, the mingling of these two truths. It is the, as, as Sally spoke about, it is the seventh factor of enlightenment. It is the culmination of the of the development with mindfulness as the navigator, as the central ingredient. It is, the, it is that unshakable steadiness, that neither too happy nor too unhappy, that is able to then meet life and see so clearly and dispassionately, including everything, but not limited by it. Taking everything in. that quality of impartiality toward all experience. It's interesting, as I was working on putting this together today, it was amazing, just mingling with that sense of impartiality, the quality of balance, the quality of receptivity, of acceptance, all those various flavors of equanimity. Uh, It had this impact on my mind, so I'm, I'm hoping that that in spite of the, all the armies of Mara that may, that may be assaulting you, even in this moment, that you can recognize just by, just by the, the visiting of this concept into the room. And perhaps maybe you'll even begin to uh, recognize that, that that feeling is available to you. So I'd like to speak a little bit more about this, just give you a little bit of uh, some of the definitions so that it perhaps feels like it comes more alive. Sometimes it's translated or described as even-mindedness or balanced mind, clarity of mind, that kind of seeing things really in a very unbiased way the quality of non-suffering or non-reactiveness, non-clinging, often translated as to look over, this ability to to be able to see without being caught up in what we're seeing. The way that I actually, in terms of the visual field, is to be able to see without fixating on different objects. So if you were all to experiment with seeing as though you're seeing from the back of your neck right now, try it. Everything is still seen, but you're not fixating on anything. Try it. Just one trick that helped me. <laughs> So this power, when it's developed, brings a great sense of peace, strength, confidence, and it's often the the ease that comes with seeing the big picture. A few years ago, uh, Heather Martin was leading this retreat, and she used a metaphor that I thought was really um, quite useful for describing the development of this quality of equanimity. She talked about how, as we all do, that way that our mind goes from that, that narrow, gravitational field of me and mine, of self, and it's more like a ball. That's the, the image of the ball. And it's very unstable, because the ball can easily be you know, rolled around. And as our mind relaxes and steadies, moment to moment mindfulness, it's much, our mind is a little bit wider, more open like a bowl. And as the quality of mindfulness grows, that trust in awareness, that refuge in awareness grows, that bowl spreads out to be like a plate. So the ball, the bowl, the plate. Steady, solid, rooted. It's also described as like the sun that shines upon the earth not being discriminating about what it shines upon. It does not choose to shine on some things and not others. This quality of, of equanimity is, has the quality, as I said, of acceptance. You just feel that quality even right now in the room, of acceptance, receptivity. The quality of letting... Go or letting be. I can't remember who said it, but it seems very true that the more letting go happens, the more letting go we do. To put it more personal terms, the more equanimity. This is why Ajahn, Ajahn Sumedho. So. Uh, speak so often about letting go? Have you read it? (laughs) Okay. Just the late evening, evening, not too many people here? Okay. (laughs) 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 This is always the risk. (laughs) I read it again. Mm -hmm. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice, then develop that, achieve this and go into that, understand this, and read the suttas, study the Abhidhamma, learn Pali and Sanskrit, the Majamaka, the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Vajrayana, Mahayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Sounds a little like Sakaya Ditti, doesn't it? Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) He goes on, though, relevant to our conversation. Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world, but instead I suggest just being an earthworm letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world just be an earthworm who knows only two words let go let go let go <laughs> just so you have the full thing he says you see ours is the lesser vehicle the hinayana so we have only these simple poverty stricken <laughs> practices but this is the this is the the more For me, this is the most inspiring part. The important thing in meditation practice is to be constant and resolute in the practice, determined to be awakened. So it's not to be conceited or foolish, but resolute, even when the going is rough. Remind yourself of the Buddha, the one who knows, the Dharma, how it is, the Sangha, and stay with it, letting go of despair, of anguish, letting go of pain, of doubt, of everything that arises and passes, that we habitually cling to and identify with. Keep this letting go like a constant refrain in your mind so it just pops up on its own no matter where you are. So This letting go is really the quality of accepting what comes, saying goodbye to what goes, or as perhaps an even more fierce quality uh, represented by a line from our teacher, Punjaji, where he says, accept what comes. Reject what goes. (laughs) (laughs) I've thought about this for so many years. (laughs) It sounds on the surface so tongue-in-cheek. But then I realized that quality of reject what goes, it's that sense of let it go with such gusto, it's as though you planned it for it to go. This is the quality of equanimity, freedom to let things come, say goodbye. It's also described and translated as to see with patience, to see with understanding, described as a kind of grandmotherly love. So you can feel that the quality of equanimity is imbued with, with love, with caring. It's so engaged. It's so opposite of what is described as its near enemy of indifference. The grandmotherly love who, who loves her grandchildren. But thanks to her experience, she doesn't get too caught up in their stuff. She lets them go. The wisdom that comes sometimes with with age. it brings a certain kind of balance. we can call upon it. Upeke is the word that we use, the namesake of the dorm, that um, that uh, the fourth building here, the fourth Brahma vihara. But also in the suttas, there is a, a word that's used to describe the same thing called tatra. Majata, something like that. Which means to stand in the middle of. To be right in the middle, in the center. And that's the kind of balance that comes from inner strength. Which is really what's happening as we develop these awakening factors. That still point. Just even sense it right now. How, how accessible that is. That still point in this turning world. A sense of now, and mindfulness is that leader. So it's that capacity to experience the the pains and the pleasures and the, the things that are neither painful or pleasurable, with a certain openness, a certain steadiness. It means to also be able to be hurt, to be betrayed, to be... Um, I, I wasn't sure when I, this would come up, but I uh, borrowed this from James, teacher of picture of Neem Karoli Baba, who was really the embodiment of this quality of equanimity and, and boundless love. And <clears throat> there was a time in my life when I, I happened to be involved with a, a person, I won't mention any names, nor any particular qualities. <laughs> <laughs> and this person, due to her karma, uh, could, w- was uh, anything but faithful. And so it was literally one betrayal after another. And yet it was, it was not possible for whatever reason, to put this person out of my heart. So I was uh, not just in my heart, but I didn't have a lot of equanimity. And so I was really blown by the winds of, of whatever her particular actions were at that time. But I also carried along with me a picture of Neem Karoli Baba. And every time I looked at that picture, I calmed down. Something calmed down and my heart softened, everything eased. And it was reliable, it was quite miraculous, kind of mysterious. And it really was, what it was evoking was that quality of, of calm, of, of poise, of balance, of being able to experience what was there. This is how it is. And it would, it would help me regain my composure. Being in this role over many years uh, is clearly the, um, the odd moment but occasional moment when someone has been uh, excessively aggressive or left aggressive notes or all kinds of things. And we think of this quality of equanimity as being absolutely impervious to, uh, to these things. But it, I think this is a misunderstanding. In fact, we are progressively... More tender, more sensitive beings. This is the way we're designed. We're meant to be tender. In fact, the way that Trungpa Rinpoche sees this is when we begin to appreciate our tenderness, our vulnerability, this is the beginning of what he calls, or the birth of warriorship. And that we, and it's really being passionate about this tenderness that is the, um, that really, it is the. Um, beginning of, in some ways, the beginning of equanimity. So nevertheless, i you know, at, at different times, I've been, um, s- someone has sent a message one way or another, and it's really hurt, and, you know, I could feel my system crumble, or, you know, whatever would happen, some kind of reaction, but, uh, but it's not to, to be free of those reactions, but it's to be able to meet those reactions with that grandmotherly love, that openness, that that um, that balance that can accommodate that as well. Equanimity, as you may get from this uh, this description of just dealing with intense experiences. Uh, Equanimity doesn't build, a, as one person put it, an ivory tower. Insulated from all the cares, the difficulties, the struggles of, of living, of being a human. It's, as Carol says, it's messy. It's, it's not pretty. This is, the, in some ways, the, the de, the, one of the elements, one of the flavors of dukkha. But our capacity to meet this experience, the quality of equanimity actually increases our compassion, our tenderness, our ability to have our hearts broken. Because we, we know that this quality of balance, this safe harbor, exists within our consciousness that can carry us through these various um, torments of the mind, different reactions. So it's said in the teachings that this quality of equanimity is the great protection from the so-called worldly winds, the winds of praise and blame, loss and gain, pleasure and pain, fame and shame. And we all have this. And how it works in dealing with situations of our life all of these different worldly winds, is it, it? It's born of the understanding that everyone is the is the inheritor, is the heir of their karma of the, of causes and conditions. The understanding that each of our bodies came into being by causes, it's not personal. Our actions came into being by causes, not personal. We grow, our bodies grow, you can't say, don't grow. We get old, we get sick, you can't say, don't get sick, don't die. Our everything occurs according to causes and conditioning. And that we act in ways, uh, the only way we can up to certain moments, given the different information that we have, the different, um, different qualities, the different karmas, and we are, in, we are all caught in this, to a degree in this net of interdependent causes. I think of a, this, one of my favorite passages that I ponder a lot from Nagarjuna where he says, you are not the same, nor are you different from that which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with it. So it talks about the ambiguity of self, but it clearly speaks to, the, um, to how we are constantly impacted. Our life has no beginning. It has no end, really. Everything is affecting everything. It says, you are not the same, nor are you different from that which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with it. This is the deathless teaching for Buddhas who care for the world. Let that one just sink in a little bit. In some ways it's it's saying that nothing could be any different than the way it is this moment, up to this moment. And this understanding deepens that sense of things are just the way they are and could not be any different. So this especially has, um, has helped me uh, to not keep um, people out of my heart because I realize that not only am I the inheritor of all these causes and conditions, but every single person and every single person's action. In my own practice, some... This happened in my practice back in the um, early 80s. I was in the midst of a three-month retreat, and this really speaks to this sense of things just being born of causes and conditions. Uh, And having a little bit more understanding about that, how it not only brought more equanimity and uh, more understanding, but also brought a kind of self-compassion I was sitting in a, a little cubicle about four feet wide, or maybe five feet wide, about 12 feet long, doing all my walking practice in my room, sitting in my room. Some days, you know, sometimes for weeks at a time, having my meals brought to me, or actually, no, I think it was about 10 days, and really going through the same process that all of you are going through. And I looked around my room. And it was very small, as I'm describing. And it had no closet. It had a little rack that was hanging from the side of the the room. And in the room was uh, all my stuff. I had uh, a lot more clothes than I needed. I had all the little accoutrements. Any of you decorate your rooms on the retreat? (laughs) Any of you bring a lot of creature comforts? Some people really, you know, I remember going into some of my friends' room at at IMS, and I couldn't believe it. They had literally it looked like they had their their recliners and their and their rugs. They had a little bigger room than I did. <laughs> but I was sitting in this room, and I would notice that uh, as as things would get difficult, I would start looking around and seeing all my stuff and deriving a little bit of pleasure from looking at the different clothes on the rack and imagining that I could have more of whatever I was going to you know, have, a, have it in different colors or the things that needed mended and how I was going to do that and you know, a lot of papancha around, around desire. And there was also a little voice in me that was kind of grumpy about being so, such a greed type you know it just and it was clear that that was the dominant uh dominant um hindrance that would present itself uh, when things were a little bit tough and clearly i was in the middle of a of a major deconstruction project and a and a kind of psychological regression and uh, so there was a certain point where i w- i felt so vulnerable so tender as we do in the middle of retreats and there surrounded with all my stuff and then everything started to feel like it was like it it was I couldn't even look at it. It was painful to look at. Everything brought pain to my mind, to my heart, to everything. And I looked around and I, I realized I, I felt as though I was one year old. And I looked around the room and I said, I realize I need to be held right now. And there was no one obviously there to hold me. So I rolled over onto my little foam foam pad, wrapped the f- few pillows that I had around me, and I just started to wail. I know this describes you know we've all had we all have not everybody but but we tend to have a lot of wailing <laughs> visits, and uh, of course many people wait for the big wail and it's it's nice but sometimes it's a little overrated. <laughs> but, but, but at this time, this time it was it, it had an impact. Because as I rolled over onto the bed, no one there to hold me, holding myself and, and just wailing away, something cracked in me. And I looked around the room at all that same stuff that I'd been quite critical of. And I realized that all that stuff was the way that I had, up to that point, held myself. And that it just cascaded into this Almost this understanding this everybody has their strategies of how they hold themselves, everybody, even the things that they do that cause tremendous harm to themselves and others, every one of us is at the at, in our heart of hearts seeking for some relief, and it just it kind of cracked everything open and the the self compassion that came at that moment, the sense of um, of having some care for the all the causes and conditions that led to that moment, that crack has never really ended and it 's amazing how that that um, quality comes to the rescue that quality of of um, compassion to this day really, but as much as that quality of compassion, when I reflected on it today, I saw that it was also the uh, a quality of uh, it increased the sense of equanimity toward uh, the actions of other people. and So in that way, let, let me, to some degree, uh, let me mingle a little bit closer with everyone in their karma, everyone in their conditions. So rather than, than equanimity through understanding leading to more disconnect, it actually led to more connection. This is why someone like, I, I have a feeling why, someone like Swami Jidananda um, wrote his poem called Anyway. He says, people are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you're successful, you'll win false friends and true enemies. Succeed Anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. It's not easy to face the the worldly winds, but we can begin to to test ourselves, to invite into our minds those kinds of situations where we would uh, ordinarily be easily blown by the winds of, of karma, the winds of circumstance, be blown off of our center and see by, in, by actually invoking, resolving, to develop this quality of equanimity. Someone gave this poem to me from Philip Lapate. This is a, the true test. It's called, We Who Are Your Closest Friends. We who are your closest friends feel the time has come to tell you that every Thursday we've been meeting as a group to devise ways to keep you in perpetual uncertainty, frustration, discontent, and torture by neither loving you as much as you want nor cutting you adrift. (laughs) Your your analyst is in on it, plus your boyfriend and your ex-husband, and we've pledged to disappoint you as long as you need us. In announcing our association, we realize we've placed in your hands a possible antidote against uncertainty, indeed against ourselves. But since our Thursday nights have brought us to a community of purpose rare in itself with you as the natural center, we feel hopeful you will continue to make unreasonable demands for affection, if not as a consequence of your disastrous personality, then for the good of the collective. Now, how would you feel if you, if you were that person? Now, we may not face actual circumstances like that, but we often face them in our minds, that kind of paranoia, that kind of sense of projected praise and blame, projected gain and loss, and we can begin to see if we can sit in the middle of those different reactions. And this is, is, is benefited so much by this quality of mindfulness and the equanimity that comes from it. This is the last of the parmes as well, the, the, the facets, the kind of crystal crystal reflections of awakened consciousness that develop as we practice the paramis, the purifications. It's the 10th the of the, uh, the 10 paramis. And yet each of us, in the course of our lives, some of us are more developed in some and others. The good news is we can awaken this. But it's also good to have people in our lives who really model this quality, who we can actually call to mind. The people in who our lives who have this quality of equanimity. I still to this day use uh, my father as a, as a model of equanimity. Back in the 90s, uh, he was st- stricken with the, uh, the dreaded, um, what's it called, um, well it's a form of leukemia, acute myelogenous leukemia, very virulent, very quick. Uh, but he went through several rounds of chemotherapy and stem cell transplants and all the things that, that go with that. And he, in spite of going through all of this, right up until the day he died, he manifested in a, an amazingly unruffled way. And he manifested that way through not what seemed to me as very little papancha very little dwelling on the imagined past, imagined future. He literally took every moment as it presented itself, just moment after moment after moment. And he was not busy being equanimous. He was just, he kept that quality of simplicity. He wasn't even busy being simple. He just was, that was his natural quality. This We know some people have this parmi developed just by, by karma. And we can, we can mingle with that uh, person in our minds. Think of someone, even right now, who has that quality of, of serenity, of equipoise, that steadiness, just here, just now. The quality of equanimity is is often described as the as the eye of the storm the some Buddhist text as the open center of the Dharma wheel that sense of of the that same instant of mindfulness when it in that moment it arises before we constitute into my mindfulness into the meditator, into the meditating. It's just that simple moment of mindfulness when we're right in the middle of things. A classic phrase that's sometimes used is, may I open to the silence and stillness within me and be at peace. This is not so far away. Our story may say say, this is not me may i open to the silence and stillness within me and be at peace so this is the general sense of equanimity but it manifests in many many different ways in our practice and it's something that we that once we begin to notice the way it is manifesting in the different facets of our practice, again, by turning attention to it, it, we can enhance that quality because it is so important for being able to meet our experience. So there are different types. One type is traditionally called the the sixfold equanimity, which, which is the kind of equanimity that comes from having our senses wide open means opening, even right now, opening all of your doors of perception. Open the ears, open the eyes, open the, sense, the sensing organ of the body, open the nose, open the tongue, open the mind, consciousness. And this quality of openness... of keeping the senses open. When we practice this, this is, and we practice mindfulness in, in this way, we do not treat anything that presents itself, any sense door. We don't close one sense door and open another. We keep them all open. We open them equally. And in fact, to be able to navigate. The uh, story that was given to me was uh, Steve Smith, who grew up in Hawaii and... And learned a lot about the Samoans and how they navigated the seas and how they were completely tuned in to the flow of the of the the waves. Somebody I think talked about the waves during an early part of the retreat, but they had this quality of all of their senses opened, and were able to out of that came that that quality of of panya that that uh, intelligence and sati sampajanya that that mindfulness that's mixed with clear comprehension of the situation of the circumstances this is the sixfold equanimity when our senses are wide open and completely impartial to any sense experience there is the equanimity that we feel literally in when our effort is balanced Not too tight, not too loose, not straining, not struggling, quality of receptivity, non-contentious. And we can tell when our practice shifts from that sense of balance and when it locks into that sense of balance. And to know when our effort is balanced, put a light on that feeling of balanced effort not an accident, and something that, when attended to, can be enhanced. So effort that's neither strenuous, excessively strenuous, nor lax. The kind of equanimity that comes, and this is a little bit of uh, a reiteration of the, that comes as born of wisdom and understanding, I know Andrea spoke of the other night of, of impermanence. And this, of course, is the, the one of the central liberating insights of the Buddha that brought that relinquishing of grasping and aversion, that brought that quality of acceptance was seeing so directly and closely as we can, moment to moment, every moment of seeing it, strengthening that quality of equanimity, seeing the, the the common characteristics that that are part of every single experience. Of seeing the the fact of everything that arises passes away, that everything that arises and passes away is uh, marked by unreliability, ungraspable. And in that way, we see that if there's any grasping, there's there's uh, there's dukkha. We see that everything that arises and passes away is an expression of the emptiness of it in time. It's empty, it's non-personal, it's arising and passing of itself, has no root, no home, every moment. The more we see this, this incessant change, the impersonality, the unbidden nature of experience brings about this quality of of equanimity. And we can begin to sense what happens when we meet that quality? See if it happens the next time, that you're actually with the flow of experience. What's the quality of your mind at that time? If, I said I think earlier in the retreat, if you're curious about something, you can't suffer about it in the same moment. It's also true with equanimity. If there's balance, if there's balanced attention to something, it's not possible to suffer in the same moment. So see what happens. Don't believe anything I say. Someone in interviews today this speaks to the, the equanimity or balance that comes from seeing the conditionality of everything. You know, that Andrea spoke of the conditionality, how everything arises according to causes and conditions and he began to see after having for years been so terribly identified with the judging mind and all the methods of just oh this is judging mind judging or feeling it or doing this but once he began to see the conditionality of it the way it came according to circumstances and causes and conditions grasping becoming etc cetera, etc cetera, the the personalizing of it began to melt away and he began to he was describing he may not have used this language but it was clear that he was feeling so much freedom so much sense of equanimity around these judgments that had been such a source of fixation so it's so it is uh, different flavors of seeing through the the uh, tendency toward meing and mind that 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 quality of that tendency toward identification. I think that one of the best expressions of this understanding is in another passage from Ajahn Sumedho. Where he says, now we're sitting in a room full of karmic formations that we conceive to be permanent personalities. We carry these around like a conceptions bag, because on the conventional level, of thoughts, we regard each other as permanent personalities. How many things do you carry around with you? Grudges against people, infatuations, fears, and things of the past? We can get upset just by thinking of the name of someone who's caused us suffering. How dare they do that, treat me like that, over something that happened 20 years ago? Some people spend most of their lives carrying grudges around so that they ruin the rest of their lives. But as meditators, we break through this pattern of memory. Instead of remembering people and making them real, we see that in the moment, memory and bitterness are changing conditions. We see that they are anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanent, unsatisfactory, empty. They're formed in time just like the sand grains of the Ganges River. Whether they're beautiful, ugly, black or white, sand grains is all they are. So listen inwardly. Listen to the mind when you're starting to experience pain in the body. Bring up the voice that says, I don't want this pain. When's the bell going to ring? Listen to the moaning, discontented voice, or listen when you get really high. Oh, bliss, I feel so wonderful. Listen to the angel indulging in bliss and happiness. Take the position of the silent listener, making no preferences between angels and devilish things, and remember that if it's a condition, it changes. It ends. Recognize and let things come and go. They're just karmic conditions changing, so don't interfere. The tendency of the modern mind is to think that there's some ogre lurking way down deep inside, just waiting for an unguarded moment to drive you permanently insane. (laughs) Some people actually live their whole lives with that kind of fear. And every time the monster starts to come up, they go, oh, but monsters are just another condition, sankara. Another grain of sand of the Ganges River, maybe an ugly sand grain, but that's all. If you're going to get upset every time you see an ugly sand grain, you're going to find life increasingly more difficult. Sometimes we have to accept the fact that some sand grains are ugly. Let them be ugly, don't get upset. If you saw me sitting by the Ganges River looking at the ugly sand grain saying, I'm going to go crazy, you'd think Ajahn Semedo is crazy. (laughs) Even a really ugly sand grain is just a sand grain. What we're looking at is the common factor of all these qualities, hidden monsters, latent repressed energies, powers, forces, they're all just sankaras, nothing much. Take the equal. Take the position of the Buddha, being the knowing. Even the unknown we see is another changing condition. Sometimes there's knowing, sometimes not knowing. One condition's the other. The black hole, sunlight, day and night are all change. There's no self, nothing to become if you're being the knowing. But if you're reacting to all, all the qualities of samsara, you get really neurotic. It's endless, like reacting to all the sand grains of the Ganges River. How many lifetimes does it take to to react to all the sand grains of the Ganges River? Do you think you have to emotionally respond to each sand grain of the Ganges River, being ecstatic over the beautiful, depressed over the ugly? Yet that's what people do. They dull themselves, get worn out with this emotional turmoil and want to annihilate themselves. So they start taking drugs, drinking, etc., etc. What we're doing instead of building a shell and hiding ourselves away in fear and dullness is to observe that none of it is self. So we don't have to desensitize ourselves. We can become even more sensitive, clear, and bright. And in that clarity and brightness, there is the knowing that if it arises, it passes away. And that's what Buddhas know. So just briefly, equanimity comes from understanding the conditionality and the three characteristics. There is also the feeling of equanimity that's associated with with dwelling in that, uh, that feeling tone, but very awake, that is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neither too happy nor too unhappy. And the way we can discover this is in those moments of that something is neither pleasant or unpleasant. And to take an interest in that space, to mind that gap when it's not typically as interesting, where we normally go very quickly into some kind of self-story, or we go into some kind of looking for some kind of entertainment. But to actually dwell in in that space, I think of the that passage that that voice that always comes on in the subways in London where it says mind the gap mind the gap mind the gap over and over again and see what happens when that gap begins to widen you may begin to feel something that this quality of balance that is uh, that's very uh, that, that isn't all puffed up but it's very satisfying and it really exist as that very moment of, of mindful attention as well. That moment when mindfulness arises. Last but not least for this, um, this talk, the, there is also another kind of equanimity that's a little bit more in the direction of rather meeting the vicissitudes of life, that balance and poise. It's more the... Uh, a kind of uh, deep quality of steadiness and peace that's born of deep concentration, that's born of a mind that is very collected and composed. And it's the image that the Buddha used was like an artesian spring where the lotus pad's floating just below the surface of the water, and there's some movement on the surface above, below, and around it, but the lotus pad itself floats in a still-suspended state, within the currents moving around. And this kind of, this deeply collected mind, which uh, many of you from time to time, I would say all of you have touched to a certain degree in moments. When we really uh, can touch these moments of quiet, take an interest in those moments of quiet, I don't mean grasp at them, I don't mean build a monument to yourself for having experienced them, but to just feel them. It is that state of poise and balance and equanimity that pervades those states of deep concentration that begins to decondition our mind's tendency to grasp. And it inclines us, it has the effect of inclining us to in some way stay away from anything that that does not support steadiness and calm, anything that we do in our life. So much do we begin to fall in love with what the middle part of the Eightfold Path called purity of mind. That mind that is at least temporarily not inundated with hindrances. It begins, it has a healing effect on our grasping and our aversion, our tendency toward complication and papancha, to be able to, to touch that. Of course, not to be able to rely on it because it is subsumed by dukkha. It is subject to decay and change, but nevertheless it's quite helpful. And then the, as we deepen in, if you happen to uh, to, practice uh, what are called the jhanas, which I know have been mentioned on this retreat, the, the fourth jhana is characterized by the quality of equanimity. It, per, it pervades that, and there's a a relinquishing of of any—it's a kind of dispassion toward any um, any um, seeking of pleasure. And it, in a sense, you could say that that quality of equanimity that comes in the in this fourth jhana uh, actually erases anything that um, that. Begins to erase things that prevent calm, and so it's deeply purifying, deeply healing. Anything that opposes calm, it begins to loosen in our hearts. And a quote that I find very uh, indicative of this quality of that really is available right now, but is often felt in these states of of deeper calm and concentration. There's a passage from an Advaita text called The Boundless Ocean, and this will be the, the beginning of the end. I am the boundless ocean. This way and that, the wind blowing where it will, drives the ship of the world, but I'm not shaken. I am unbounded deep. In whom the waves of all the worlds naturally rise and fall, but I do not rise and fall. I am the infinite deep in whom all the worlds appear to rise, beyond all form, forever still, even so am I. I am not in the world, the world is not in me, I am pure, I am unbounded, free from attachment, free from desire, still, Even so am I. Oh, how wonderful. I'm awareness itself, no less. The world is a magic show, but in me there is nothing to embrace and nothing to turn away. Ultimately, it is this impartiality toward things that allows us to rest. As Joseph Goldsley puts it, a mind suffused with equanimity is poised and balanced with whatever may be arising in its experience. We feel soft, spacious, as things come and go. An equanimous mind does not move reactively at all. The state is likened to a mind of a fully awakened being. So even before we've realized complete liberation, we can still experience this place of peace. So may all of us and all beings be peaceful and happy. And at the same time, may we know that things are just as they are. May we take care of each other, yet may we know that things are just as they are. May we find joy in our lives, yet may we know that things are just as they are. May we be happy and peaceful, have the causes of happiness, be free of suffering, may we touch that boundless joy and that boundless equanimity, serenity, able to meet the joys and the sorrows with less grasping and aversion. Because I brought um, Neem Karoli Baba into the room, I'd like uh, us to chant together, a chant that of his words or words about him, the embodiment of this quality of, of equanimity, I'll do it once by myself, and then we can all join in together. really speaks of that inclusive, uh, giant heart, but immovability. I am like the wind, no one can hold me. I belong to everyone, no one can own me. The whole world is my home. All are my family. I live in every heart. I will never leave thee. Oh, crystal tears. Oh, taking away my fears. Together. I am like the wind. No one can hold me. I belong to everyone. No one can own me. The whole world is my home. All are my family. I live in every heart. I will never leave thee. Oh, 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 crystal tears. Oh, Oh, taking away my fears. Once more. I am like the wind. No one can hold me. I belong to everyone, no one can own me. The whole world is my home, all are my family. I live in every heart, I will never leave thee, oh, crystal tears, oh, taking away my fears. over there. Anyway, thanks for your attention. Enjoy your practice with equanimity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.